Thank you, Zach and praise team. Man, we are just so richly blessed with our praise team and the work behind the scenes. If you'll stay risen with me for today's scripture reading and turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15 as Pastor Bruce continues his series, Summer in the Psalms. And the summer is going quickly. It is hard to believe. I was just having a conversation. I felt like school just got out and here we are, people going back to school. So... Psalm chapter 15, follow along in your Bible as I read. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy, 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 Lord, be your name, Father. And we come this morning, Lord, and we declare, Father, that you are holy, Lord, Father, I pray for each person under the sound of my voice and under the sound of Pastor Bruce's voice today that you would just meet them where they are. Lord, would you just reveal yourself to each and every one, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he went to the cross, that he died for our sins and rose again, Lord, conquering death. And Lord, that you are a promise keeper and that he is coming back. And Lord, we look forward to that day. In your name I pray, amen. Well, once again, like we do each and every Sunday, I invite you to keep your Bibles open there to Psalm chapter 15. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as we continue in our series, Summer in the Psalms, here in Psalm 15. Questions. Sometimes questions are rather irritating. In fact, those questions can be oftentimes very exhausting. And sometimes questions are encouraging, though, and and even enlightening. The fact is, people ask questions all the time. Some people ask them many, many, many times, especially kids. And if you have kids, you are very aware of that. If you are a parent of a young child, sometimes you are just exhausted by all the questions kids ask. Where does milk come from? Why does ice melt? How are babies made? And we could go on and on and on by all the questions that kids will ask. Now, when you're young, we tend to think that we have all the answers, therefore there's not a need to ask a lot of questions. But as we get older, we learn that it's more important to ask not just any question, but rather to ask the right questions. In fact, asking the right questions can make all the difference in the world. For example, if you're buying a used car, it's important to ask the right questions. If you're deciding between going to college or trade school or, or going to either or just finding a job, you need to ask the right questions. If you're, if you're buying a house, let me tell you, and you need to ask the right questions. It can make a difference. If you're hiring someone to remodel your kitchen, asking the right questions is rather important. If you're seeing a doctor because you need some type of surgery, asking the right questions, again, is important. And if you're falling in love, 
and think he or she might be the one to marry, you definitely need to ask the right questions. It can make a difference. And so asking the right questions is rather important. In fact, asking the right questions is a key part of wisdom. And of all the right questions to ask, David's question here in Psalm 15 is one, if not the most important question you can ever ask in your life. In fact, you could not ask a better question than the one David asked here in verse 1 when he says, Or ask, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Charles Spurgeon called this particular question the great question. John Trent, in his book, calls this question the the most important question you'll ever answer in life. And so let me summarize it this way. This most important question you'll ever ask and answer in life this way. The question we might pose it this way or summarize it this way. Who is worthy to be in God's presence? And what we're going to see in this psalm from David is this answer. Only the one who measures up to God's standard is worthy to be in God's presence. Now, is there any question more important to ask? And is there any answer more important to consider than the question and answer that David gives us here in Psalm 15? I would throw out to you, there is not. This is the most important question that you can ever answer in your life. In fact, most Bible scholars seem to agree that David wrote this psalm after he oversaw the work of moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, where it was eventually placed in God's tent on God's holy hill on Mount Zion. In fact, David may have written this psalm as a liturgy for God's people to recite as they would go up to worship the Lord on Mount Zion, the holy hill of God. It's also interesting to note in our series here, as we have traveled through these last few psalms here, that Psalm 14, which we looked at last Sunday, actually ends with a reference to Zion in verse 7 of that psalm, where it says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would, would come out of Zion. And lo and behold, right here, is precisely where David picks up in Psalm 15, with Mount Zion. Psalm 14, if you were with us last Sunday, is all about the folly of the fool. It's all about people who who deny that there is a God. Whereas Psalm 15 is all about people who desire to worship God. And so they ask life's most important question, who is worthy to be in God's presence and worship Him. This is the question that fools of Psalm 14 refuse to ask. They refuse to consider and answer. But everyone needs to consider this question in the answer that David gives us. In fact, Patrick Reardon, he writes that life's greatest tragedy is to fail to sojourn in God's tent and to dwell on His holy mountain. What does that mean? What difference does it make in your life here today? Well, that's what I want us to look at. And so let's unpack this most important question you'll ever answer here in Psalm 15. And what we see, first of all, is the question that just stops us in our tracks. 
the question that stops us in our tracks. It's the question again that David asked at the very beginning of the psalm in verse 1. Look at it again with me one more time. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, we need to stop and ask, well, what does David mean with this question? I mean, what does it mean to sojourn in God's tent? What does it mean to dwell on God's holy hill? Because those are metaphors for living or being in God's presence. God's tent is also called the tabernacle. It was the place where where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was where God's presence was revealed for God's people In fact, God's tent is the dwelling place that that went with God's people as they journeyed out of the land of Egypt into the promised land, primarily when they journeyed during those 40 years in the wilderness. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 25 through 40. And so God's tent represented the, the centrality of God's presence in the lives of his people. And it reminded his people That if God did not go with them to the promised land, if God did not travel with them in the wilderness, they would never, never, never make it to the promised land. God's holy hill is just a reference to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where the Ark of the Covenant was eventually moved by King David. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The words that David uses, sojourn and dwell, they point more than just a, a visit to God's tent. It's more than just a visit up to Mount Zion on God's holy hill. A sojourner is a resident alien. And if you were here just a few years ago when we, or just this last year, uh, when we looked in Genesis at Abraham, we learned that Abraham was a sojourner. He sojourned in the promised land when he pitched his tent and he dwelt in the land of Canaan. And this is why David then later on says in Psalm chapter 61, verse 4, he says, let me, let me dwell in your tent forever. You see, David's desire, his heart desire, is he did not want to just visit God's tent. His heart desire was to live and to dwell and to be in the very presence of God in his tent, on his holy hill. And so David is asking a much bigger question than it just seems on the surface here. This is a question that stops us in our tracks. And in the context here of Psalm 15, we might ask the question this way. Notice it in your notes. How good does one need to be to live in God's presence and render him worship? How good do we need to be? In other words, what kind of people can live in God's presence and worship him? God is holy. In fact, no other characteristic of God is spoken of by the Bible the way it speaks of his holiness. Not love, not his grace, not his mercy, not his power, not anything else. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says that God is holy, holy, holy. Three times stressing it, emphasizing it. And God requires nothing less from those who then dwell in his presence on, as David says, his holy hill. So if David did write this psalm when when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem, he would have just received, he would have just seen a very powerful object lesson in the holiness of God. 
referencing back to Second Sam or yes, Second Samuel chapter six. There in that chapter, you read about how the priests were bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and they were doing so on a cart that was being pulled by oxen. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem too bad. Doesn't seem rather odd. That seems normal, except for the matter is, that's not what God instructed or prescribed for the transportation of the ark. The priests were specifically instructed by God to carry the ark of the covenant on poles. But instead, the ark is being carried on a cart by oxen. And as they traveled to Jerusalem, carrying this ark by oxen, the oxen stumbled and the ark began to slide off the cart onto the ground. And so a priest named Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark and to keep it from falling on the ground. And when he did that, at that moment, God struck him dead right there beside the ark of the covenant. It was startling. It was shocking. Shocking to to everyone who was there to see it because along the way behind it, there was a procession of David and God's people and they were singing, they were celebrating. And all of a sudden God does this and it's startling and it's shocking and especially for David. In fact, later on in the same chapter, it says in verse 8 and 9, David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah and David feared the Lord that day. And, of course, the obvious question is, why? Why did God do this? I mean, what, what was God communicating to David and his people in that moment? R.C. Sproul gave this answer in one of his lectures on the holiness of God. And he says, Uzzah made a false assumption. He assumed that the dirt was more defiled than his own hand. But Uzzah, as well as all human beings, was guilty of sin. And because of his unrighteousness, because of his presumption to reach out his hand, to touch the very place where God revealed his presence, God struck him dead at that moment. And it was a tangible reminder to David and the people of Israel that God requires holiness. No one can just come into his presence without fear and without holiness. And so in light of God's holiness and what David just saw, he's now writing this psalm and he's asking the most important question you can ever answer in your life. How good or how holy do we need to be to live in God's presence? How good or how holy do we need to be to enjoy fellowship with him, to to worship him, and to dwell in his tent? That's the question, and it is a question that stops us in our tracks just like it did Uzzah. So what's the answer? What's the answer? David gives us the answer, and it is an answer that searches us. It searches to the core of our being. It penetrates our hearts. The answer that we read here in Psalm 15. The question that stops us requires an answer that searches us. In the rest of this psalm, David tells us exactly who is worthy to live in God's presence. Look what David writes here in verses 2 through 5. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right 
and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own herd and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, who is worthy to dwell in God's presence? Listen, this is the most important question you'll ever answer. And we can summarize David's answer here in verses 2 through 5 in this way. Here's the answer summarized. The one who is righteous may live in God's presence. And enjoy fellowship with him, for a holy God requires a holy people. Again, referencing back to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, we saw that although we are told there that all humanity is ruined by sin, that God is still with a, he calls it the generation of the righteous. That's Psalm 14. And lo and behold, what we see here in Psalm 15 is a description of the generation of the righteous. David's laying out for us here in the very next psalm, he's telling us who this generation of the righteous is. Who who is worthy? The generation of the righteous are the ones who are worthy to worship the Lord, who are worthy to enjoy fellowship with him, who are worthy to dwell in his presence, in his tent, on his holy hill. And so David lays out here the qualifications for anyone who desires to live in God's presence. And taken all together, these qualifications give us a, a, what we might call a, a composite picture of a righteous person. It's a representative list of qualities. It's not exhaustive. David's not trying to list every quality here. And so this is not so much a detailed description of righteousness as it is is of a portrait or a profile of the kind of person that can live or dwell in God's presence and enjoy his fellowship and give him worship. Ten qualifications are listed here in Psalm 15. And they can be arranged in different ways. We might today, what we're going to do is arrange them in three broad categories, character, conversation, and conduct, and they're all interwoven. They're tied together. And so what we see here, first of all, is the character of the righteous is blameless. David tells us in verse 2 that to live in God's presence, we must, look what he says, walk blamelessly, do what is right, and speak the truth in our hearts. And so this verse, David sets out in verse 2, he gives a very general description about the character of the righteous person. And so he or she is one who who walks blamelessly. And we've already seen that term blamelessly in our study of Abraham. Uh, It's it's what God told Abraham to live like in Genesis 17.1, where God tells Abraham to walk before me and be blameless. And we learned then that blameless there does not necessarily mean flawless or, or sinless perfection, but the idea is of wholeness and completeness. And so we would say this person is genuine. He's the real deal. James Boyce describes it this way. It refers to a person whose character is morally well-rounded. This person is not just strong in one area and weak in others. This person strives to keep all the commandments. This person, in other words, 
according to David, a general description here is he consistently walks in the way of the Lord. Because what he or she is on the outside comes from who she or he is on the inside. In other words, this person is whole and holy. And therefore, they speak truth in their heart, which stands, again, that's why it's so important here to look at and study Psalm 14 and contrast it with Psalm 15 here. Because what David says here about speaks truth in his heart stands in sharp contrast to the fool of Psalm 14, who does what? He lies in his heart. He lies to himself when he says in his heart there is no God. But the righteous person, on another hand, in sharp contrast to that, the righteous person doesn't lie to himself. He doesn't suppress God's truth in his heart. Instead, he does what? He speaks God's truth in his heart, and he walks in God's truth in his life. That's the first characteristic. The character of the righteous is blameless. The second profile here, the conversation of the righteous is truthful. The qualifications that David gives here in verse 3 are horizontal now, focusing on our relationships with other people. In all three of these qualifications, they're, they're stated in the negative, describing what we are not to do. In other words, the, the righteous person here, according to verse 3, doesn't go around slandering people with his tongue. And the next line that David gives is more general, does no evil to his neighbor. And the final line zeroes in on our speech once more, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. That is, the righteous person doesn't mock one another. He doesn't ridicule his friend. The righteous will neither slander nor scorn other people in their speech, according to verse 3. And then we come to number three, the conduct of the righteous person. And David says their conduct is godly. We see this in verse four when David describes the righteous person this way. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So despising a vile person in honoring those who fear the Lord are simply two sides of the same coin. It, it means this. Loving what God loves and hating what God hates. It means we honor what God honors. And, and who does God honor? We learn all through Scripture that God honors those who fear Him. Those who fear the Lord. But those who are vile, those who are characterized by their conduct, by sin and wickedness, they are condemned and rejected by God. David also says in the rest of verse 4, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does that mean? Well, the NIV puts it this way. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. So this is a person, in other words, who, who keeps their commitments that they have made no matter what it costs them. For this person, their integrity has no price tag. They may be a loser financially because of the commitment they made, but they are committed to keeping their oath, to keeping their promises, their word. 
And then the last two qualifications that we see here have to do with, with how we use our money and also has to do with issues of justice in society here in verse 5. When David writes, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, uh, please understand, David's not condemning taking out a mortgage on a house. He's not condemning investing, you know, in a, in a CD at the bank or, or the stock market. The primary aim when David says, who does not put out his money at interest, is all about protecting the poor, especially in David's day with God's people. And so what you find in some of the laws that God gave to the children of Israel is that God forbid them to charge interest on loans that God's people would make to fellow Israelites. And the primary reason for that was to protect those who had less, who were, who were poor. The righteous person, in other words, is not motivated by greed and charging all the interests of their fellow neighbor, their fellow Israelite. Rather, they're motivated by compassion. Nor does the righteous person, David says, and this is, this is what goes into the issue of, of justice, a righteous person does not take a bribe against someone who's innocent, nor, nor do they pay a bribe to thwart justice against the poor. So there you have it. There's all the qualifications. We can break them down into three things. Yeah, you have a, a character, you have conversation, you have somebody's conduct. Three broad categories, but ten qualifications. And they show us here the holistic nature of righteousness. It reveals for us the kind of person who can live in God's presence, who can enjoy his fellowship. This psalm gives us a picture of the kind of person we, we today, you and I, the kind of person we must be in order to enter God's presence and to dwell in his tent now and forevermore. And taken all together, David is describing a righteous person summed up in the very first qualification, he who walks blamelessly. That's the standard. That's the standard for living, being, dwelling in God's presence. That's the qualification for being and entering into his tent on his holy hill. And let me tell you, it is an answer that searches and penetrates our hearts. The question stops us in our tracks. And the answer David gives searches us. Oh, does it search us? Lastly, this psalm supplies us with a promise that hopefully settles us. David concludes this psalm with a promise in verse 5. He says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Moved from what? Shall never be moved. Moved out of my house. I'll never be moved out of the city. I'll never be moved away from my school or my job. Is that what David's referring to? No, 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 no. Most likely, the promise is that the righteous will never be moved from what? From what he's asking in verse 1, the question. You will never be moved from sojourning in God's tent and dwelling on God's holy hill. So here's the promise summarized. The righteous will never be moved. Why? Because they are safe and secure in God's tent. 
this phrase that David uses, never be moved. It's also translated in other versions of the Bible as never be shaken. Never be moved, never be shaken. It's the same idea. It refers to the, the spiritual security and safety of the righteous. The righteous will never be shaken in their faith if they live this way. Why? For they are dwelling in God's presence. And so the righteous not only enjoy God's presence, but listen, listen, they are kept in God's grip continuously and permanently. In fact, the last word in the Hebrew text reads it this way. He shall not be moved ever. So the promise that we have here at the end of this song, the promise of, of dwelling in God's presence, it carries it, an everlasting guarantee. The righteous will, will never be moved. They will never be shaken. Why? Because they are safe. They are secure in God's tent. And this is a promise that should settle us and comfort us. But if we're honest, most of us are sitting here probably finding this psalm very, very unsettling. There's nothing comforting about this psalm right now. I mean, who, who may live in God's presence? Who may enjoy his, his fellowship? The answer is crushing. It lands on us like a, a series of, of punches in an MMA cage fight. Cage fight. We, we hear David's answer here in verses 2 through 5, and then you kind of scan over your week last week, and then you stand in front of the mirror and you look like, not me. I mean, who, who here is achieving this standard of righteousness in their life? Go ahead, stand up. And go ahead and look around. No one is standing. Who is this good? Who, who here is this righteous? I don't know about you, but as I read this psalm, my, my heart sinks. Because I know I fall short of what David lists out here in verses 2 through 5. Do I walk blamelessly? Do I do what is right all the time? Do, do I always speak truth in my heart? I, I, I Listen, I wish I could stand here before you as your pastor and say, yes. But the answer is no. Listen, God knows me inside and out just as he knows you inside and out. He knows I, Bruce Adrian, as your pastor, a husband and a father and a grandfather, do not measure up. That's my ultimate problem in life. This is my ultimate problem. All the other problems I have, trivial to compare to this problem. And the truth of the matter is, this is everyone's ultimate problem, including you. Notice this in your notes. None of us here are worthy to live in God's presence. For none of us are good enough. None of us are holy enough. Psalm 15 is describing the person we are not. Let's be honest. Between Psalm 14 and Psalm 15, 
I would have to say I am more like the person in Psalm 14. How about you? Than the person in Psalm 15. Psalm 14, 2 through 3 says this. See if you identify with it. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. David himself even cries out to God. In Psalms 143, verse 2, he says, Enter not into judgment with your servant. In other words, with me, God. For no one living is righteous before you. And we've just seen only a righteous, only a person who is righteous is worthy to live in God's presence. And David's just telling us here that no one living is righteous before God. We have a huge problem, folks. We have a monumental problem. Listen, we think the government's our problem. We think the FBI and the DOJ and the economy, we think all that is the problem. We think the war in Ukraine and Russia, blah, 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 blah. We think all that's the problem. They are problems in our society. We have problems in our culture, and they all rooted right here to this problem. Listen, I know. I know from my own life, my own experience, and you know that we do not measure up to God's standard of righteousness. And so we are crushed by what we read here in Psalm 15. We, we feel the weight of these qualifications just building up and crushing us. And as we evaluate the profile of the righteous, we know how far we fall from these standards of righteousness. Oh, do we fall short of this? Or as Del Ralph Davis puts it, Psalm 15 simply leaves me in tatters, in ruins. So where does that leave us? I certainly don't want to end the sermon right here. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave you? Where does that leave you? Where does this leave me? I mean, we're asking the right question, right? We're asking the most important question that we could ever ask. But the answer is crushing because none of us are worthy to live in God's presence. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with one solution. Notice it. Jesus Christ is worthy. Praise God. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ is worthy, and we receive his righteousness through faith in him. Listen, there is only one person who has ever met the qualifications in this psalm, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who has ever fulfilled this psalm. Jesus is the answer to the question of Psalm 15. Jesus is the only one who ever lived a blameless life. He's the only one who did what is right. He's the only one who spoke the truth in his heart always. 1 Peter 2, 22 says, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus did no evil to his neighbors. Instead, what did he do? He laid down his life for his enemies. He swore to obey his father and did not change his mind, even though it cost him his life. And Jesus was not moved. He set his face toward the cross, and he hath now been exalted to the right hand of the Father where we now await his coming. So this psalm, this psalm is intended to crush us and then comfort us 
by pointing us to Jesus Christ. For only Jesus measures up to God's standard of righteousness. Only Jesus is worthy to live in God's presence. This psalm, psalm, it is meant to remind us that based on your righteousness, based on my righteousness, based on, on what we can do, you and I will never, ever be good enough to live in God's presence. So this psalm is calling us to abandon our own righteousness and instead to receive God's righteousness. Paul, the Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sake he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become what? The righteousness of God. And thereby, we can now dwell and live in his presence, now and forevermore. This, folks, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ is our righteousness through faith in him. Listen, Jesus, he achieved the righteousness that you and I cannot achieve on our own so that we now can dwell in his presence. The qualifications in the psalm, they don't don't serve some kind of checklist for us so that we might somehow be confident in our own worthiness of entering into God's presence. So please don't read the psalm in that way. Rather, this psalm is reminding us that without God's righteousness, We will never be good enough. We will never be righteous enough, never be holy enough to enjoy his presence. But when we we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this is the miracle that happens. His righteousness is credited to our accounts. It's credited to us as Paul lays out in Romans chapter 4. And then we may now enter God's tent, we may dwell in his presence, and we may render him worship now in this life and forevermore. So yes, this psalm is intended to just crush us. And then it's intended to comfort us by pointing us to Jesus as our righteousness. But we must not miss this. Please do not miss this. Because this psalm also is calling us to something. This psalm is calling us to live righteously. And that brings us to our live it out lesson from Psalm 15. And the live it out lesson is this way. Oh, 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 yes, 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 yes. Trust in Jesus for your righteousness and then live righteously in the power of God's spirit. Listen, when we trust in Jesus, God not only gives us Christ's righteousness, but God also gives us his spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us and begins to make us righteous by producing in us the righteous qualities that we read here in Psalm 15. By the power of God's Spirit, we actually then, we become characterized by righteousness in our character, in our conversations, 
and in our conduct. And folks, that is the work of God's Spirit changing us from the inside out and transforming us and making us righteous. And so the question for us this morning, has he begun to do that work in you? Has that begun to happen in your life, the transforming work of Jesus Christ through his spirit? And if not, why not? If you're no more righteous than you were five years ago, last year, why not? What's up? In your character, in your speech, in your conversations with one another, with others, even lost people, in your conduct, if you are no more righteous, and I'm not saying perfectly, we're not, this is not blamelessly sinless perfection, but if we are not progressing, and the biblical theological word for this is sanctification, we are already justified, we're already declared righteous, so our being is we are declared righteous. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, you are being declared right. You are. That is who you are. And the question is, are you living it out? Because this psalm calls us to live this way. This this is the call of Psalm 15. We are called to live righteously in the power of Jesus Christ and his spirit. So just please understand this standard. Yes, the standard we read here, Psalm 15, it's high. But it's not just an unrealistic standard that you can say, oh, nobody can do that, I'm off the hook. And then you just quit trying. No! Because what it says in Leviticus 20 is repeated in 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 and 16. Listen to what it says. As obedient children, Peter writes, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, that is before Christ, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, God says. This means that God's standard of righteousness that is described for us here in Psalm 15 is actually the moral standard by which we, as Christ followers, are now called to live by, to live out in our character, in our conversations, and in our conduct. And we are not to do this, for it is impossible. You can't do this, not in your own power, but in the power of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit, and by the power of the living Word of God. And so every day we have, yes, praise God, we have the comfort of Christ's righteousness. And if that is you, man, woo, right? Amen. You are declared righteous. Nothing can change that. You stand before God as righteous because Christ's righteousness covers you. That is our comfort. That is our confidence that when we die, we are in the presence of God, not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness at the moment of salvation. And so we have the comfort of Christ's righteousness, but we need to also embrace the call to live righteously. Because that's the call we have as well. 
In the words of Paul Tripp, though, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Paul Tripp says it this way. Some of us are living lives that are not pleasing to the Lord because you are dancing on the comfort and have forgotten the call. But you cannot accept the comfort of the gospel without also accepting its call. And so, yes, by all means, let us dance on the comfort of Christ's righteousness. Listen, when we gather together here on Sunday mornings, that is what we are doing. We are celebrating that fact. That is our comfort, that is our confidence. But also, by all means, let us embrace this call of Psalm 15 to live righteously in the power of God's Spirit. And the promise then of the psalm, oh, the promise, is that you will never, ever be moved. For you are safe and secure in God's presence, in God's tent, on God's holy hill. Listen, you want stability in your life in a chaotic world? You want some security in your life in a world that is not secure? You put one foot on the comfort of the gospel, you put one foot on the call of the gospel, and you will have a life of stability and security because you are actually placing your feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. The question is, have you done that? Have you first been declared righteous by God through your faith in Jesus Christ? And yes, it is a question that stops us in our tracks and it humbles us. For only the humble will repent of their sin and confess their need of Jesus Christ. And yes, the answer searches us. It searches us daily. David cried out to the Lord, search me, O heart. God, search my heart. Reveal to me. So none of us live out these qualities perfectly. We understand that. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, Listen, we can be changed people. Our relationships with one another, our spouses, our family, our friends, they can, they can be Christ-like. Righteousness. Righteous relationships. And in our conduct. Yes, we know we stumble and fall, but we get back up and we receive God's forgiveness all over again. And we continue this journey of living Psalm 15, not in our own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus Christ, and the power of the living word of God, and with the encouragement of God's people together. Which is why it's important that we gather once a week. It's why we, it's why we have our grow groups throughout the school year, so that we can come together and support one another, pray with one another. This is all tied together so that we now can not only embrace the comfort of Psalm 15, but also the call of Psalm 15. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word here in this Psalm of David. Thank you for providing us the righteousness of your son Jesus so that we may dwell in your presence now and forever. And thank you for providing us the power of your spirit so that we may live out Christ's righteousness in our daily lives. 
By your grace, may we be people who are characterized by Psalm 15. And Lord, I pray that if anyone here has been convicted in a deep, heart-piercing way, convicted of sin and the need for your righteousness, I pray that right now they would look to you. They would look to your grace, and they would find in Jesus all that they need. And so, Lord, work in us and among us. And we pray that you would do it for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.